He said, Dad, that was your childhood. You were the athlete and you wanted your father to play with you. I was an artist and I wanted you to take an interest in my drawing and in my art, but you kept on trying to live your childhood through me. He said it with kindness, by the way. It was amazing, this 17-year-old boy. He said it with kindness and love and acceptance and the father heard it. And it was this profound moment. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. You are listening to Don't Be Afraid to Talk podcast with James. If you are listening for the first time, you are welcome. Talking and listening is key for growth, and I hope our stories will bring us together and we can draw inspiration from each other. Conversation will include topics such as mental and physical health, trauma and its effect, suicidal thoughts, recovery, and well-being. We will continue to raise awareness and offer a different perspective a mindset or an idea that could inspire you to take charge of your well-being and to grow as a human being. Thank you for joining us today and welcome to another episode of Ask the Therapist. Today, my guest is Dr. Brad Reedy, who is joining me from Salt Lake, Utah. That's right. Is that in California? That no. is just just east of California, about eight hours by, by car. Jeez, that sounds long. Yeah. So thank you very much. Thank you. And yeah, today we're going to be talking about his book that I have here, The Audacity to Be You. And we're also going to be touching on subjects like parenting, marriage, and a lot more. So... Thank you for joining us today. Um, Dr. Reedy, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I have a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and I got into this because as a child, I struggled with my parents. I struggled with substance use. I struggled with depression. I didn't know it was depression at the time. I thought I was just angry, but I realize (laughs) now that a lot of the things that were going on in my life with my parents, with my family... um, were far less than ideal. And so I got into it through that work. And so now I spend my time, I run a wilderness program for adolescents and and young adults and families. And I spend the majority of my energy talking with and working with the parents. So while they're sending their children to my program, Evoke Therapy programs to get get treatment, Mm -hmm. now we're working with families. And so my my passion, my bliss, my love is, is working with parents in a compassionate way understanding that their journey is still their journey and they get to live it and they get to be honored in it. And there's so much parent education that's about, I, I think, criticizing parents. So I spend mm. a lot of time doing parent therapy, parent education, parent coaching. We run intensives also for parents. So I spend a lot of time in, in the parent field and also in the couples field. I do a lot of couples intensives also. So yeah. I'm a father of four and I'm I get paid to do what I love to do, which is try to pass on the gifts that other therapists have given to me. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, before we get going, we're just going to play a quick game, one for one. Okay. I'll give you a random word, and you say the first thing that comes to your mind. <laughs> oh, my God. This is, uh... all right, now I'm nervous. Go ahead. It's just five words, sorry. Uh, so the first word is detachment. Healthy. Ordinary. 
Say that again. Ordinary. Nobody. Victory. Happy. Talent. Gifts. And the last one, hypnotize. Connected. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> I hope that I hope I'll get a write-up on what that means about me later on. <laughs> There's no it's just random words. They don't mean anything. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, just random words. Um, yeah, okay, I'm fine now. So I'm just going to pick on some uh, quotes from your book. Uh-huh. And uh, if you can just elaborate more on that, please. That would be great. To. Love to, yeah. yeah. So the first one, which is chapter two, is Finding You. That came across as more of a, about finding yourself. And you talk about the self. Right. When you talk about the self, like, what what do you mean by that? You know, I know there's a lot of definitions to, to, to the self when people talk about what I mean when I talk about the self is just who you are, your most authentic self, the, the most, the honest and, and most true part of yourself. It's your feelings, your thoughts, um, your wants, your dislikes, your loves, your passions, your hates, your anything that, that really could start off with the the word I, I feel, I think, I believe. And, mm -hmm. and, and because so much of that, in my experience as a therapist and a client, yeah. so much of that, that self has, has been compromised over the year to, to, to fit in, to belong, to, to be deemed acceptable that, you know, the act, the idea of finding it again, of discovering what was lost, discovering what was sacrificed is that idea of, of finding you. So it's just finding your most authentic, honest, real self. Yeah, that's without the the needing to feel belong, the needing to trying to fit in, just to right. find yourself and be happy with yourself. <laughs> right, right. I think that so. I I don't want to make too 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 large of a statement, but mm. if I were forced to, I would say you know that that um the primary wound that people are carrying around is that in childhood that they had to show up a certain way and hide certain things to be found acceptable by their parents, right? To be, yeah. to be found, to be um, somebody the, 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 the parents could tolerate. So much of my work is helping people unlearn what they learned, but also rediscover the things that were given up a long time ago, mostly in childhood so that the parents could tolerate the child. So that's a pretty heavy topic to start off with. But that's the <laughs> idea that I think about when I think about finding you. Yeah, yeah. If you're tuning in, you're like, "Oh my God, it's only three minutes in, and they're questioning right. my, they're questioning my parenting." <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, sorry, I just have a quote from your book here, which is, "Being right and being self are two diametrical opposite projects." Is that around focusing on being yourself than being what we say it's right and wrong? Yeah. I, I, Again, this is this is maybe the thesis of the book that that there's really two projects. You know, mm. you can either try to be right or good, which I, I think most of us try to do, and and actually we're taught that that was the the worthy project was to be a good citizen, a good person, a good father, mother, brother, sister, friend, employee. Mm. The problem with being good and being right is that it ignores so much of who we are. Yes. The great Guru Ramdas said that the solution to I am good is not I am bad, but the solution to, excuse me, the solution to I am bad is not I am good, but the solution really is to 
to to own all of yourself to 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 meet I am bad with I am I am sometimes crappy I am sometimes wonderful and I'm sometimes everything in between so we have to let go of being good we I, I, again I know this is a sweeping statement mm. but we have to learn to sacrifice being good and being right to find out who we really are and I think that that's such a terrifying and and, and scary process to to go through and that's why in my work you got to do it with somebody else that can kind of help you carry the the burden of that guilt, that shame, mm. that fear that comes up when you're trying to discover who you really are instead of who you should be or shouldn't be. So in in trying to find who you are, you will have to embrace all the things that are bad about yourself. Right. I wrote just this morning, just minutes before we started, it was actually something I'd written a while ago and just shared it on my social media. I said the outcome of good therapy is realizing that you are a disaster and a miracle all at the same time. You know, when I when I when I have an experience as a as a client in therapy, mm. I'm able to see the dumb things that I do, the ridiculous things that I do, the the okay. the, the irrational things that that I do with compassion and love. So they're not the enemy anymore. And making mistakes is not the enemy. I'm not fighting my entire life, but rather I'm listening and leaning into all the parts of myself because even those, you know, James, those parts of us that that we were taught are unacceptable. They have some wisdom and some energy in there that can give us mm. life and creativity. So, yes, it's about learning to lean into and embrace the parts of yourself that you have been taught that you should reject or despise or or or, or let go of. And and what I think is sometimes when you throw that stuff away, you're throwing away powerful parts of yourself, creative parts of yourself, parts of yourself that have. I mean, that's what depression is. You 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 get rid of some bad aspects, but you also get rid of a lot of really good energy too when you get rid of that stuff. Mm. And with depression, do you think not being able to accept who you are contributes to that? I mean, there's a lot to it, right? There's there's a, a, yeah, there's, there's, yeah, yeah. There's biology does. and there's chemistry to it, and I want to acknowledge that. And even there, there are circumstances like this year for me. I, I suffered from depression in the last year and a half with the pandemic, and I know I'm not alone in that. From the mm. from the looks of my caseload, I know I'm not alone in that. <laughs> no, definitely not. But but I I do think that there is a, a a therapeutic idea that you just stated that I would highlight, which is I used to think that depression was about um, feeling sad when really it's about not feeling everything. In fact, sometimes mm. the cure, if you will, the therapeutic cure at least, is to learn to feel your sadness, to learn to feel your grief, to learn to feel your anger. And I, I was just listening to somebody talk yesterday, and he was he was saying that happiness is better than anger, and I thought that's not exactly true. Anger is just different. It it just it has something else to say. Okay, you, you can learn from anger as well, can't you? Sure, we can. Oh my gosh, anger is is a really effective tool to get you to be clear about yourself. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, I feel angry when I'm not setting good boundaries and other people are letting me down. So, anger is a, an energy in me that says. I wish people would rescue me. I wish people would do, would read my mind and do what I needed. But I'm going to have to assert myself. I'm going to have to take the risk of showing up. Excuse me. I'll, I'll, sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. I'm going to have to take the risk of showing up, uh, of telling the truth, and of taking care of myself. Because if I don't, nobody else is going to do it for me. So I think that that's a that's a that's a lesson and a gift that anger has to offer us. Yes. Yes. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. My next quote is from the book, which mm-hmm. is. The role of a parent is to raise healthy cells, not good children. Yeah. This came out of um, 
there was there was a a story about the time that I was writing this this part of it where there was a young man in Southern California where I grew up originally, and um, he was you know the captain of the sports team. He was popular. He was good looking. He was he was every he had everything going, and he, and he mm. took his own life. And um, as I read about him and learned about him and read the the notes that he left for his mother and his father and his teachers, he left a few notes, um, and those were published. I could hear in his story that the pressure of being good, the pressure of being okay. the, the talented one, the, the beautiful one, the, the smart one, the shiny and bright one, that it got to him, that he wasn't allowed to be at times like we all are, a flop, a failure, a, a screw-up, an imperfect person. And so while we think as parents that our job is to raise good and successful children, the epigraph of, of mm. my book says that, that each of us were taught the notions of being correct and that very notion ensured our, our failure in the world. And so my thinking is that we raise children to be who they are and that in becoming who they are, all of their gifts get realized, all of their talents are expressed. But if we, if we try to shape them up or, or, or kind of mold them into what we think is the good and the right thing, we lose so much of what makes up who they are. So the, the, the idea as parents is it's, it's harder, it's, it's messier, mm. it's more difficult, but the idea is that you, you're trying to raise up a person to be who they are, not a person to be good or to fit somebody else's, including yours, idea about what it means to be a good person or a good citizen. Yeah. Yeah, because often, like, as a parent, your focus is to raise a good child. Yeah. And often that means them ticking boxes. Right, right that society expect them to take. <laughs> there was a there was a movie a couple a few years ago called Inside Out. It's a cartoon. Uh, it's supposed to be a child's movie, but like a lot of children's movies, they're they're for adults too. They actually are, yeah. <laughs> there's a scene where this young girl had been moved from Minnesota where she was on the ice hockey team. She had a bunch of friends and she moved to San Francisco, California. And in this scene at the dinner table, mother and father are sitting there and she's very sad about all the the losses that she's just experienced and how unhappy she is in San Francisco. Even the pizza with the pineapple on it is very different than the pizza back in Minnesota. And as she's sitting there sad and blue, the father yells at her and said, where did my good little girl go? In other words, he's equating her being happy with being good. Yes. And, and he misses then to lean into and to support her sadness because, as you know, being sad is being mean, means that you love. Being sad means that you care. Grieving a loss means that you had an attachment. And and for this father and this mother, because it's so difficult to sit with a child's grief and sadness, they wanted her to be good. They wanted her to be happy. And, and, and even in that little cartoon, we get a glimpse of how damaging it can be to raise children to be what we think is good instead, instead of raising them to be who they are and to feel all that they feel. Mm. Yes, Co conscious children. <laughs> Yes. Yes. That's a great way yeah, to say it. Conscious yeah. children. It's not it's not it's not easy because I think so often with parents you try to raise the child the same way you were raised. Right. But especially now, this generation, like the way the world's going, I don't think the two of them much. <laughs> no, I think there's a lot of times when you when you're taking simply your background, especially your unexplored uh, unexplored background and you're trying to apply it to raising the child you end up missing the child. I have four children and the same 
approaches don't work with all four of them. So mm. if I just come in with a with a template with an idea about how I, they need to be raised, what happens is I miss them. I miss oh. seeing them and their uniqueness, and that that takes a lot more work than just applying an idea or applying a template to somebody. Yeah, great. And um, there was another quote here which I thought was good. Uh, I would rather be whole than be good. Mm-hmm. That's actually from Carl Jung, and and I think it speaks to the same idea that um, to be all of you is the greatest expression of life. I mean, the the meaning of life is your life. To express it, yeah. The meaning, I mean, you you are the answer to what is the meaning of life, your life, and and because it doesn't matter if it's religion, honestly, it doesn't matter if it's religion, if it's culture, if it's um, even psychology. If we start getting into the the idea about you know creating good people, we 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 miss all of them. Um, we we want to help them make sense out of all the parts of themselves, and and with that with that exploration, with that embracing of all the parts of them, we get a much more beautiful picture of a person than we do if they're just trying to show us the, the shiny and pretty parts, which are impressive but don't have the depth and the texture of, of all that we have to offer as humans. Mm. Yeah, great. I have another question here in relation to the subtitle of the problem is, is outside of me. Yeah. I might find it easier to label the child as inadequate. He's too sensitive, he's too dramatic, he's too needy. Right. And then you have, rather than owning my feeling and inadequate of dealing with it, I project it not onto, but into the person, into the other person. So is this where the, so you have a child who's in pain or angry, whatever, and the parent is projecting their own uh, insecurity? Is that the right word? Yeah, that, that's a good word. You know, it's, it's, it, it's actually very simple and, and universally common. Um, my mother, I'll use my example. That's probably the easiest one to use. My mother was a single mother raising three boys. And of the three boys, I was the middle child. And I was the one who was making the most noise, who was getting into trouble, who was the most vocal about what he was feeling when I was angry, sad, frustrated, so forth. And so instead of my mother owning the fact that she could, that that I had exceeded her capacity, instead of saying, you know, I need help or or, let's get you a therapist or let's get you a mentor because there was no... There was no father in my life, and it was just her mm-hmm. on her own trying to make ends meet. She told me I was bad. You know, she told it to me by saying you're 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 too sensitive. You're you're being melodramatic. You're being dramatic in the situation. So instead of saying as a mother, I am inadequate, and I'm sorry, and I will get help, she said you're wrong and you're bad, and you need to fit within my abilities. You need to fit who you are within my bandwidth, within my capacity. So she took her inadequacy and she put it into me. So then I went through childhood believing something was wrong with me. Okay. And and and, and it wasn't it wasn't wrong with me. What I was saying, what I was feeling was real. And now now I use all of that as part of my gift and my practice and my work and my my own parenting, my own relationships. But for many years I thought because my mother, because I had exceeded her limits of what she could deal with, I was led to believe that something was wrong with me when, in fact, something was wrong with her. And, and, I'll, and I'll give my mother credit because she's done a lot of therapy since then. Yeah. And, and she's 80 years old. She just turned 80 this month. 
But about five years ago, she said to me in the car one day, she apologized. She said, I'm sorry. You were too big for me, and I didn't know what to do, and I was overwhelmed with you, and I'm sorry that I hurt you. And even though I had done my own therapy work around this issue and it made sense of it, I thought it was a great gift for her to acknowledge yeah. that she took her feelings of inadequacy and insecurity and made me feel them, so to speak. So it's, it's not an obvious process, but now it is to me. Now that I look at it you know, as a, as a therapist with somebody with a degree who's done a lot of my own work, it's as, it's as easy to see as anything that I was made to feel what she couldn't feel. Mm. That would make sense. That comes with a lot of awareness from a parent's point of view, especially if you have, yeah, like in her case, she has tr three kids and one of them's out of line. <laughs> so, and yeah, I, you're kind of wondering like, what's wrong with this one? Why's the other two not? <laughs> yeah, the other two. Why is this I, one to be difficult? <laughs> they learned to, they learned in a way they took it on too, but the way that they took it on is they became good. Yes. My older brother did all the right things and followed all the rules. And my younger brother, who's my very closest friend now, um, he became very shy and introverted and anxious. And so he got small. My older brother got small. And I'm not going to use curse words on here because I don't know your audience well enough, but I wasn't going to have it. Like my thing was I would rather burn this house down than have to suffer quieting myself. And so I made all kinds of noise and got in all kinds of trouble because I was trying to express that there were things inside of me that I felt that I needed that weren't being met and the world mm. the world was going to hear about me from one way or the other. They were either going to hear about me from making a mess and getting arrested like I did do or, or later on in life the way that they're hearing from me now, which is with, with some healing to, to share with people. I know what it's like to be that little angry kid getting in trouble, using drugs, getting arrested. And um, I have a sense of what he's asking for. And if we slow down enough to pay attention... Maybe we can start as a village to give him what he needs. Mm, yeah. The next point I highlighted here, it's slightly similar, but I say, so this is page 38. So most people are not able to see others, but rather they impose themselves on you. Right. They do it out of anxious need, but the insidious aspect of this is they call it loving or caring. Right. You know, I'm really thinking a lot these days about the the psychological term intrusion, which is to overstep, to kind of impose yourself onto people. Mm -hmm. And I, I just had a therapy. I'm in therapy. I'm, I've been in therapy with my therapist for 22 years. And I, I had my session right before you and I started talking. And we were discussing that again today about how common it is for people to impose on me their belief system, to impose on me their their ideas. In fact, they, they often look at me like, like we believe the same thing instead of asking me what I think, asking me what I feel. And it's so easy for a parent to do that to a child. A few years ago, maybe this is the best way to explain it. A few years ago, in working with a father in therapy, it came to me that um, sometimes the gifts that we give to our children are the gifts that we want. Right? We give them things that we want and we call that loving. And so I, I took some time to think, what do my four children, what's a part of them that, that I can value that is very different than me? And so I came up with a gift for each one of them that was not, not my thing. You know, it wasn't my style. It wasn't my, my thing. And it was a gesture. On the morning I gave to it, on, on Christmas morning when I gave it to them, I, I, they love it because I cry all the time. I started crying <laughs> and I just said, 
I want each of these gifts to represent that I see a part of you that's different from me. And I don't, I mean, that took effort and focus on my part and I'm, I'm, I try to practice it, but I don't think most people, I don't think most people know themselves even well enough to know that the person sitting next to them is different because they just assume because they're so unconscious that everybody thinks and feels the same way. And of course, we all know that that's not true. So it's about knowing yourself well enough to be able to see somebody as other, somebody different, to be able to see and respond to them and their needs instead of projecting onto them yourself and not really connecting to them. Yeah. And do you think some of that is to do with, because we often see, we often see where, say, father and a son, you kind of see the son as yeah. the little you. Right? So you kind of, you, you kind of want them to be right pretty much the same as you. So, so you miss that. You don't give them opportunity to be themselves. You just see them as like, this is the little version yeah. of you. So you're going to model them to be like you. <laughs> I saw this. I was working with this father and son. And this father said to his son in, in, a, in a session, he said, you know, when you were young, I wanted to play catch with you. I wanted to play what, what you call football, what we call soccer. Mm. I, I, I was always encouraging you to do those things. And the, and the boy said very calmly, he said, Dad, that was your childhood. You were the athlete and you wanted your father to play with you. I was an artist. And I wanted you to take an interest in my drawing and in my art but you kept on trying to live your childhood through me. He said it with kindness, by the way. It was amazing, this 17-year-old boy. He said it with kindness and love and acceptance, and the father heard it. And it was this profound moment early in my career where I was like, if we don't heal ourselves, if we don't explore our own wounds, we will try to give our children something we didn't get. And in that, we will miss them because we're not responding to their needs, but we're responding actually are unmet needs that happened a long time ago. And so that little story of that boy kind of illustrates this point that you're asking about, which is you have to know yourself. You have to work on yourself. You have to listen and pay attention at levels that most people don't to be able to see the other person and respond to their needs instead of just imagining them to be an extension of you, a, a little mini you, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That definitely happens. Uh, thank you. I'm just going to go on to chapter five which is about marriage divorce and psychosis right so the start of it you have the part where you talk about muddling love uh -huh. words that we uh, we often use you complete me he is my everything she is my world he is quite a lot mm -hmm. she's my she's my better half he's my best friend my lover my biggest supporter and then you have sorry the dance of feeling each other's emptiness is exhilarating in its infancy and can be exhausting as it matures is that where at the start you're using those words and years down the line you're no longer using those words <laughs> you know again i kind of discovered this in my own marriage first and then have, have then seen it in so many other people's marriages that so often it actually I think it helps to refer to something that the actor Will Smith said. In fact, he was interviewed this week and repeated it again this week. And I had written this book long before oh. he said it this week. Right. The idea is in marriage that I don't think that we're clear about that Will Smith articulates is that it's not your job to make your spouse happy. That's their job. And it's not their job to make you happy. That's your job. And the 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 
the role, the, the goal in a marriage is to come to the marriage happy, not begging the other person to fill your cup to make you happy, to fill the empty spots. And so in the very beginning with my wife, for example, I was a good listener. I made her feel safe. I was uh, capable of soothing her anxiety. My wife suffers from, from some significant anxiety. Um, and when I did those things to her, when I made her feel safe and good, mm. she looked at me with these big, beautiful brown eyes telling me that I was wonderful. And that was healing my wound as a child, that I needed to know that I was wonderful because I didn't know that as a child. I thought I was just the opposite. So in the beginning phases, my ability to make her feel safe made her feel the most incredible love that she could feel. And that love that she felt made me feel healed because my mother could never see me. And so in the beginning, it was exhilarating. We didn't eat. We didn't sleep. We would talk on the phone for eight <laughs> hours. And after a while, you kind of get tired of doing the other person's work. After a while, I got tired of being the one who had to be the safe one. And sometimes I wanted to be the anxious or the angry one. But that didn't fit our, our, our pattern. And she also didn't want to always admire me. Hmm. That gets old, admiring your spouse and looking up to them. And she wanted to be able to tell me when she was angry and hurt and frustrated with me. And so in the beginning, it was exhilarating and intoxicating and it was madly in love. But eventually, you need to become a whole person. And that's your individual job. Um, and so for us, that, that, that looked like a separation in 2009 and 10 where we had to spend some time on our own doing our own work yeah. so that when we got back together in 2011, I come now to the marriage with, with a sense that I'm okay. And now I can be there for her and support her, but I don't feel the emptiness and vice versa. She comes to me knowing that it's her job to make herself feel safe. She has to do that with her therapist. I can help sometimes with her with her with her good friends but to fill each other's emptiness it does it's what most people get married for and and, and kind of they match up in that way but eventually the same things that they, that cause them to feel in love end up being the things that anger them about each other because it does get exhausting mm. to feel responsible for the other person's well-being and happiness and nobody can sustain that it just it doesn't it doesn't allow you again to be yourself in the relationship and you have to have two selves in a relationship for it to be a to, to be a loving and lasting marriage. You can't have two part selves. You can't have two fractions, two slices of a self. You have to have what looks like more and more as you go along, two whole people present. Yes, yes, that makes sense. There was a so I have my tablet here with different questions I saw from your webinar. <laughs> uh-huh. Um one of the things you said we should give up the idea of being good in a relationship. Yeah. You know, most of the arguments we're having are about whether or not I'm good or bad. You know, the, uh, and, and so you're not arguing about the stuff you're arguing about. Um, you know, we just want to be lovable. We want to be worthy of love. And, and like I said earlier, the way that we learned in our childhood, the, the, the way to earn love was to be a, a good person, you know, a pretty person, a smart person an accomplished person. And so, um, mm. so many times because, because I haven't healed myself because I haven't done the work or my wife or, or any partner, I'm asking for you to tell me that I'm good. But you see, that gets in the way of you being mad at me. If I need you to think that I'm good, then there's no space for you to be mad at me or hurt or frustrated. 
So it gets in the way yeah. of yeah. intimacy, actually, the idea of being good. I have to abandon, you know, Rumi said, um, there's a beautiful poem in, in, in it, Rumi, the great poet says, um, there is a field out beyond, out beyond right doing and wrongdoing, and I will meet you there. And it's a poetic way of saying there, there's a place where when we destroy the, the shoulds and the shouldn'ts and the have-tos and the musts and the good and bad, we just get to be who we are. And that's where the deepest connections are made. But in this world where there's so much emphasis on getting it right yes. and being good, we end up so, so far away from each other. And that happens even in the most intimate uh, of relationships like marriage and most fights, most fights I hear that couples are having about each one of them trying to maintain and, and, and grab onto and hold on to this idea that they're good when there there's another way. There's a higher level, a more conscious level of dealing with our wounds and our healing than, than that. Yeah. And do you think what can happen is like a husband or wife, they might try to change the other person instead of working on themselves? Yeah, yeah. It's a lot easier to change your spouse than it is to change yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot more pleasant to think that the problem is out there, not in here, right? That that yes. spouse is the yeah. one that needs... I fantasize all the time, James, that my wife is less mature and less evolved than I am. I love thinking <laughs> that she's the student and I'm the teacher. That makes me feel wonderful about myself. Yeah, I'm so great. <laughs> right, right. But the fact of the matter is we... We get who we get for a reason. We get who we get because there's something there to teach us. And for both me and my wife, we've learned that I'm the problem in my life. The way that I'm living my life is the reason for my unhappiness. And I would love to blame her or even blame my children. I'd love to blame my children when they struggle. That if they could just not struggle and be happy and not get into trouble, <laughs> that I would be happy. But in all of that, I'm not really doing the thing that's going to make the difference, which is you know, the heroic journey in the first book, The Journey of the Heroic Parent that I wrote, the heroic journey is the journey inward. Yeah. Ram Dass said, Ram, the great guru Ram Dass said, the only thing I can do for you is work on myself and the only thing you can do for me is work on yourself. And that is such an easy idea for almost everybody to lose. Yeah, yeah. I think that concept alone in the modern world doesn't seem correct. As in, like, if, if you meet someone and you say, oh, I'm, I'm working on myself and I would appreciate if you work on yourself as well, they right. might get very defensive. <laughs> You're probably going to get a defense if you say something like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, are you trying to say there's something wrong with me? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So I have another quote here from the book. Another one I highlighted here. When we do our work, we change the frame from turning, from turning the other into something bad to seeing the other are simply a human being. Right. Yeah. In, in the marriage chapter, I talk about an incident where my wife asked if I was available to talk, to listen, really. Mm, yes. Yeah. To, to some feelings that she had. And um, it was scary. It was just a Saturday. It was nothing unique or different about any other day in a lot of ways. And I remember she actually said to me, it's okay if you can't. It's okay if you're spent. You're exhausted emotionally because I just finished working. And I remember thinking, this is scary, but I'm going to tell her the truth, which I'm not very good at. I usually try to lie and make her happy and, and <laughs> try to be there for her when I, when I can't. And so I said to her, I said, I'm kind of spent. I would love to have the rest of the day off from that kind of emotional heavy lifting. And if you're still upset tomorrow, then we can talk tomorrow. And she said, I was 
it was a gift. She said, I get it. I'll talk to my best friend. She has a good friend that she talks to. And I understand. And I was so relieved because it wasn't that I was a bad husband, which is what I believed mm. somebody who couldn't be there for their wife is, but rather a human husband. I had reached the limit of my capacity for that day, for that hour, and I owned it and I expressed it. That was my challenge to tell the truth. But what she did was equally as beautiful, which is she held the space for me and then she found a way to take care of herself. She wasn't abandoned. She wasn't left by herself. She just went to somebody that could be there for her that day. And that's why I love it that when we shift, when our work shifts, we get to a point where if you and I are friends, and you can't show up for me because you're working, you got stress, yeah. maybe you're struggling with depression. Instead of making you a bad friend, I just turn you into a human friend who can't do it, just can't do it that day. And I think that that's a really, for me, a very powerful shift in thinking is thinking of each other as humans instead of good or bad, good or bad friends, good or bad husbands, good or bad wives or children. Yeah, because that's one of the things you often hear in a trouble relationship and people outside would say, are they a good husband or are they a good wife? Is that solely right. judging them on? You're obviously still judging their behavior, like you're not really judging the person themselves. Right. Yeah, once we become informed about the effect of trauma on our life, we realize that bad is a substitute for somebody who's really wounded and really not doing well, and good is somebody that may be healed or just may be capable of, putting up what, what other people want to see, what other people want to hear. And so the words good and bad start to lose their value and, and lose their meaning. The more work we get into, we, we start to have a much, this is the irony. We start to have a much more capable, loving, generous, authentic uh, uh, um, perspective on each other. That's the irony, is when you kill good and bad, mm. you're capable to show up with more love. When when good or bad are in play, are in play then it's about failure. It's about being worthy of things. And that kind of consciousness, it's just too hard to live in all the time. We all know what it's like because we all know what it's like to, to feel that that shame when we come up short yes. and how we, we don't feel worthy of love. And we just want to hide and disappear because um, we, we're, we, we, we believe that we're unacceptable. Mm, mm. Another question I have here. Um, what do we struggle with telling the truth in the marriage? Well, I, you know, I think there are two primary jobs in a relationship, an intimate relationship. One is to tell the truth about what you mm. think and feel and who you are. And the other job is to be a safe person to tell the truth to. And usually I find that one person is better at one than the other, and the other person is better at the one. In our marriage, which is very common, I am good at being there for my wife. I can listen. I can soothe. I, I'm great at that. I'm not a great truth teller, James. My wiring in my brain tells me that I have to tell her what she wants to hear. So my focus is I have to become a better mm. truth teller. Now, on my wife's side of the equation, she's a great truth teller. She'll tell me any thought that she has about me, about my family, about anybody, <laughs> anytime. She's she's she's, she's good great, at that. Isn't it? <laughs> what she's not as good at is, is being a safe person for me to talk to. So when, when if she were here today talking to you, she would say her focus is on being a better listener. And by better listener, I don't mean just hearing the words. I mean being a safe person, not having a reaction or a trigger mm. that's going to shut me down. And so it's it's not 
always true. And of course, marriage is more complex than this, but I like to talk about it as the, the, the talker tends to be the taker and the listener tends yes. to be the giver. And so if I'm talking at you about my life, I'm asking you to listen to me with love and patience. And if you're listening to me, you're, you are giving the gift of holding. And I don't think we see the taking in the talking and the giving and the listening as much as we could. Because to listen, in my mind, there's really no greater gift in the world than to be able to be a safe person for somebody to, to tell you the, the craziest, the most irrational, the most upsetting thoughts. And to, to be a safe person is one of the greatest gifts. And, 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 and I'm also learning for myself that my courage in telling the truth about what I feel and think, I'm not talking about the big things. I'm just talking about where I want to eat, mm. whether I have enough energy to listen. That's the part that I struggle to tell the truth in. So for me, that's my focus because that's my weakness. Yes. One of the questions I was going to ask you about it, taking and giving, you mentioned it on, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it was on chapter four. What What is giving and taking in a relationship? I don't know if you guys over there are as into Brene Brown as people seem to be into Brene Brown over here, but she's kind of the queen of pop psychology and self-help over here. Yes, yes, right we now. are as well, yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> I, I am use, anyway. I use her as an example because... Her emphasis is in showing up and telling the truth, being vulnerable. Yes. You know, expressing your your most authentic truth. And that is an important part of intimacy. That's half of it, an important mm. half of it. Um, but what I don't think gets enough press is what is required to be the listener. To be the one that says, I'm gonna I'm gonna put aside my my triggers, set them aside temporarily, or work on myself enough that I'm not triggered so that I can be a safe person for you to tell the truth to. I, that is just as important. That's, that's 50% of the equation in intimacy. And I don't think people on earth realize how much work it takes to listen, to listen deeply. I use this example with parents. This is the simplest example. If, if I go to a friend, if I go to you, if you and I are friends and I go to you to tell you something about myself, that's hard to say. And your response is to gasp like, <gasps> like that. What I know immediately is you're not safe. What I know immediately is you need to be taken care of. And you can't be there for me. So I don't think people understand that and talk about that a lot. So when, when Brene is talking about showing up and telling the truth and being brave and being courageous and being the one in the arena, you know, really fighting the fight, I don't think she understands and talks about how important it is to learn to be a safe person for somebody and to say, it doesn't matter if what you're telling me is true. It doesn't matter if it, even if it frightens me a little bit, I'm going to set that over here. I'll take care of that in my therapy. I'll take care of that at my 12 step support group. And I'll do that over there so that I can be here for you right now. And that's what I mean by taking and giving. I don't think, I used to think that needing my spouse was the highest form of love. Yeah. I thought <laughs> needing my wife was like mean that I just loved her. I was overflowing with love, but needing is different than loving because loving is a giving thing and needing is a taking thing. Neither one of them are bad or good. They just are what they are. But I think that we confuse needing and taking with loving and they're, they're, they're really the opposite. Love means I have enough and I have enough to spare to give you. And um, it's not 
it's not a common idea in our culture. It's not a common idea to recognize that love is about abundance. Love is about having enough. Love is about, I always tell parents, go do your work. Go do your work. Take care of your fear, your real, honest, earned fear for your child's well-being. Take care of it over there so that when you come to the child, your interaction won't be to serve the ego that you're good. You won't be asking for something from them. You'll be able to give to them, which is really the job of a parent is to, to hold the child, not vice versa. So it's complicated, but it's also pretty simple when we understand that we have to learn to take, but we also have to learn to give and we have to know what that looks like. And it looks like doing your own work so that you can be there for the other person and not always have yeah. to be there for you. Yeah, yeah. So when you talk about the next part is about parenting, but I just want to go back on this. When you talk about need, needing someone in a relationship is you think needing someone's good, but in theory, needing them is taken from them. Right. I had a, it was really, I was doing a, a couple's intensive and the wife said to me, she paused, I, they were doing a role play, talking to each other. Mm. Um, and she paused and she turned to me, she said, is it okay to need my husband? She asked me. I said, of course, we all need people. Um, but don't confuse that with love. Um, if you do, it'll be confusing to both of you. And so, yes, you can ask him for things, and that's fine. Spouses, we give things to each other. We give things to our friends, right? We Everybody's giving. But it's it's when we think, when I have somebody come to me, for example, I, I, I do parent seminars and lectures all the time, and I have people come mm -hmm. up to me on the break. You know, if it's a long day workshop, there'll be a 10-minute break here, a 15-minute break here to get some water to stretch, yeah. to go to the restroom if you need to. People come up to me in between to talk to me, and they don't realize I've been giving, and I don't. I, I, I need this break. I need <laughs> this break for me because I can't give for eight hours straight. I need my 10-minute breaks, my 15-minute breaks, my lunch break because I need to just relax and reset my nervous system. And so... I don't, I don't think people realize how much they're pulling out of another person. And I think becoming more and more aware of giving and receiving, of giving and taking, can kind of help relationships get more clear about what, what's happening in a given moment or in a moment of conflict or stress or sadness. Mm. We're just going to talk. My next part was to talk about parenting. Uh huh. Sorry, just on that one. Yeah, sorry, this question should be good. So... I think you mentioned somewhere that we should uh, we should be friends with our child. Did I see that? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I, I wrote I wrote a, a, an article about yeah. that a few years ago, and then I and then I I, I included it in the book. Um, there's there's a there's an idea in, in popular culture that says you hmm. shouldn't be your child's friend, and I thought I I think. I think I know what people are saying. I think they're they're saying you have to set tough boundaries and make tough decisions and you have to be willing to let your child be angry at you. I think that's what they're saying. And, and I understand that's that's the point. But what I also think is I don't think people understand that that's true in all relationships. If you and I are friends, you're not my child, but if you and I are friends, I still have a responsibility to set boundaries, to say no, and to let you be angry about it, right? It's the exact same task. And so when you fool yourself into thinking that the, the parent-child relationship is so different than everything else, I think you're missing the essence of every relationship. In every relationship, if you're my best friend 
and I allow you to use me. I allow you to violate my boundaries. I, I allow you to hurt me and, and harm me without me standing up for myself. No. <laughs> that's not healthy either. And that's not that much different than being a father and a mother. So I, I get what people mean when they have that expression about don't be your child's friend. And I also think that it re- it reveals sometimes an aspect where people don't understand that they have the same jobs and duties in virtually most of the same job and duties in virtually all of their relationships. The only thing that's different in the parent-child relationship between all the other ones is my job as a parent is primarily to take care of the child. The child ought not to be and is not equipped to take care of me. Whereas in a friendship, it's a back and forth. In a marriage, it's a back and forth. In a, in a, in a My colleague and I can have a back and forth relationship. But in the parent-child relationship, the child can't take care of the parent. It's too threatening. It's too toxic. <laughs> they're too um, they're too tempted to give up themselves to 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 create a safe home for themselves. That it's too hard for for a child to take care of a parent. That's the main mm. difference. So my next question was, I think you mentioned it from Alice Miller's book, which is uh, the child must adapt to ensure the illusion of love, care, and kindness, but the adult does not need to do to do the same. Yeah. First of all, I'll tell you, Alice Miller, I think, wrote the most important book on child development in the history of books that we have today. I think The Drama of the Gifted Child, the book she wrote in 1979, Mm. is the most important book about child development that we have. And and I'm not alone in thinking that. Lots of people think that. And millions and millions of copies have been sold. Uh, Having said that, go ahead. Yeah, it's a small book as well. It's not very long. No, no. I think if you're reading it, you either question yourself or you won't believe what you're saying. <laughs> That's right. <Yeah. laughs> the most common response I have is from mothers who feel guilty because they can't, they forget to put themselves in the story as the child. Mm. And so they get, they get flooded with guilt when they read it because it's about how parents wound children. Mm. So when I, when I, when I encourage, especially mothers and some fathers to read it, I say, remember, in this book, you're the child, not the parent. I, I know it will be tempting to put yourself in that role because it's so much your identity. But for just this book, suspend the mother role for just a minute. For just a minute. You can go back to it and then insert yourself as the, as the child. You know, Alice Miller said, what the, the quote that you were referring to, she talks about how um, children are, are, are conditioned to love and take care of their parents. But the, the cost of... That means that they have to love the parent and think the parent is a good parent and tell the parent that they're a good parent. That a, a child's anger or hurt or resentment is a threat to the ego of the parent. Mm. But that's the parent's work. Yeah. <laughs> but since most parents don't do their work, the child takes that on. So they have to present the, this idea, this, this loving idea to the parent that the parent is good to heal the parent wound, which is backwards i also have parents say that my child abandoned me and i and i make the point i say technically speaking children can't abandon parents Mm. abandonment is something that an adult could do to a child but a child can't do to a parent what that tells me is that you have some work to do to heal the wounds of your own abandonment in your own childhood and to to, to develop a, a stronger sense of self so you're not asking this young child this impressionable young child to give you the love that you didn't get alice miller says Parents are often trying to prevent something that already happened. And I think that's a really mm. profound mm. idea. 
They're trying to correct something in the child that happened in their past. And I don't think that's common sense thinking. That's why her book is so wonderful. Yes, yes, Jesus. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I just have another point here. Sorry, let me just go back. Yeah, sorry, one of the things I saw you talk about was uh, how does parents gaslight their children? I wrote something a couple of years ago on my social media post that said almost all parents gaslight their children. I doubt there's good feedback, was it? <laughs> oh, it, it was half and yeah. half. Half of the people are like, thank you for telling me. And there were a lot of them saying, boy, you, you have some things you need to work on because that's just not true. Um, You've crossed the line now. <laughs> I did cross the line. I crossed a few people's lines. But it's more simple and subtle. It's simple. Like a child comes to a parent, I hear it every day. Every day, I hear a parent, either in the story that they're telling me or if I'm observing it, a child comes up and says, you know, mom or dad, I'm sad or I'm hurt or I'm angry. And the parent tries to talk them out of it. Well, they, your, 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 your friends didn't mean that or they're probably just jealous or but but they probably didn't intend to hurt you or um, I think maybe you're taking it the wrong way or maybe you're being too sensitive or you're taking it personal. All of these examples that everybody says all the time are gaslighting. It might not be as extreme as what people think about when they think about gaslighting. But James, it is so rare. It is so rare for one human being to, to, to come to another human being and to tell them about their distress and their upset feelings and have the other person say, I'm so glad you're telling me and talking to me about it. I'm so sorry. I want to be there for you and understand what you're going through, and I appreciate you trusting me. That is so rare, mm. especially if those feelings are directed at me, right? If I'm the subject of the hurt and the anger and the other person, because I'm trying to be good, I have no tolerance for those feelings because they threaten me. So I, I can't overstate enough how common gaslighting is and how often we parents do it to our children. I would, I would like to tell you I haven't done it, or that I rarely do it. And the fact of the matter is that I've dented my children in many ways. And this is the one of the ways that I've dented all of them. And it's something that they're going to have to heal from. And if, if I'm willing to look at it, I can be a part of that healing. But we, we dent our children and we dent each other in this way all the time. I'm 53 years old. And when I tell people I don't like mushrooms, <laughs> literally, nobody says, oh, okay. They say, well, you can't taste them or Why not? try them because these have gar garlic on them or butter on them or whatever. And I'm like, if I can't not like mushrooms at 53 years old, I'm pretty sure it's happening with all things all the time around more subtle and nuanced feelings. Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely, yeah. You talked about the difference between control and influencing the children. Mm -hmm. Sorry, when you talk about control, are you talking about in a sense of controlling what a child's doing? directing their behavior sort of it's more when i talk about control versus influence see the best way to try to influence a child is to not try to control them you know when we try to if i tried to get you to believe um that my football team was the best football team um versus just telling you my my you know i'm an arsenal fan that's my team so that's the way i feel about it and i'm an arsenal fan as well there you go. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So what do you know? <laughs> I think the control is when we use blaming, guilting, shaming, intimidation. Um, when we try to emotionally coerce the other person into the behavior. A simple example. My daughter 
playing with her food at dinner, not eating her vegetables. Okay, This is a, a story that plays out a hundred times in our lives, right? And instead of saying to her, Olivia, if you finish your vegetables, you can have dessert, which is a healthy boundary. You know, If you finish everything, you can have your dessert. I've chosen a vegetable that I know she likes, so I'm not forcing her to eat something she doesn't like. So it's she's just not in the mood for eating something healthy. That's, a, that's an okay boundary. But what do we do? What it looks like is we say, okay, Olivia, if you don't eat your vegetables, you can't have dessert. And then I say, it's chocolate chip ice cream. It's your favorite. Do you want to be big, big and strong like your brother Jake? Olivia, eat your ve- Olivia now, right now. Do it. So you see, I'm using all kinds of things to try to control the outcome, the behavior, instead of setting a boundary and, and, and me and her living with it. And that's what I mean by control versus influence. It's trying to manipulate somebody into thinking, feeling, and doing something versus having a clear boundary with consequences and detaching yourself from the, from the outcome. It would be okay if she mm. doesn't eat the vegetables because she can't have dessert and she's going to be hungry again eventually. And the <laughs> next meal is going to be something healthy, right? I'm going to mm. give her something healthy. So there's no loss in it, but I, because of my controlling nature... I want the outcome that I want. And here's what's even worse. Not only do we try to control the outcome, which was part of your question, but we also try to get them to want it and like it and believe in it. That's the insanity of it. It's not just that I'm happy that you're eating your vegetables. I want you to know that I'm a good dad who cares for you. Back to me being good again. And I want you to buy into it so I don't have to fight with boundaries. I don't have to set boundaries. If I can convince you to believe what I believe, I don't have to have a boundary with you in our relationship. And that's where the controlling comes into is coercing somebody to think, believe, and, and, and behave the way that we want them to. Brilliant. Two more questions on parenting. I don't know if this is the obvious one, but what are some mistakes parents make? I think the most common mistake that parents make on planet Earth is that they tell their children how they feel so that the child thinks of that as their responsibility. So in other words, is that telling the child how the child feels? No, it's the parent telling the child how the parent feels. Okay, okay. So, I, if you're my son, and I tell you that I'm happy, I want you to know you're doing good. Mm. And if I'm sad or scared or frustrated or angry, you're doing bad. Okay. And so most parents think, if I tell my children how I feel, then they will then change their behavior. They'll know that when I'm happy, they're doing well, and when I'm angry, they're doing poorly, and that will become their moral North Star. That will become their compass for doing right and wrong. Here's the problem with that. Then the child grows up not knowing who they are and believing that when a friend or a peer or a girlfriend or a boyfriend are mad at them, it's about them and it's their fault. You know, Parents will say to me all the time, my child is really susceptible to peer pressure. They really care about what other people think about them. And I don't know where this came from. And what I always say is it came from you. (laughs) Okay. You told them how you felt and that in essence that they were responsible for that feeling. And to get you to stop feeling sad, they had to behave a certain way. Or to stop feeling angry, they had to behave a certain way. And it was their job to make you proud. And that was never the truth. That is not the cure to the problem. That is the problem. So the most common parenting technique that I see, which is, Parents telling the children how they themselves feel so the child knows whether they're doing right or wrong actually wounds the child and pressures the child into taking care of other people and not knowing who they are. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. I just wanted to ask you about your Evoke therapy. Right. Is that, do you do that online as well? 
we do it. We have an online offering, an intensive mm. offering. We look at family of origin. We use role playing psychodrama. Really powerful, really emotional. We also have in person intensives that we're running all the time. There's one going. There's two going on right now. Um, and then we have our wilderness program. So this is where young people and their families go mm. out into the wilderness and they live out there for ten weeks. The children do. The parents come and visit. They live out there for ten weeks in small groups and in that context in that milieu in that setting they kind of learn what it means to be a team member to communicate to have empathy to mm. to assert themselves they learn all the things about life that that they would be learning in talk therapy but they're learning in in, in a, an experiential setting in america I, I learned this a few years ago nasa our space program yeah they use wilderness therapy for their astronauts if they haven't worked together before because in that 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 wilderness setting uh, you learn to trust, you learn vulnerability, you learn to rely on each other, you learn to build healthy relationships, whereas exercises or activities or workbooks don't quite teach it with, with the same level of, 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 of impact. And so we do it for the children, but then we also have these psychodrama intensives where you go back and talk to your younger self. You talk to your mother and your father and your brother and your sister growing up, and you have a, a, a visceral experience that, that really reminds you of kind of what you're made of and, and what what why are you struggling in your marriage today well so much of that is found in our histories by exploring our mm. histories that's what alice miller said on the first page of that book that i mentioned earlier the drama of the gifted child she said we have learned by our experience that there's only one enduring weapon in our fight against mental illness and that is the discovery of the unique emotional experience of our childhood you in my work you have to go back in attachment work, attachment-based therapy, you have to go back and look at your childhood critically to understand what's going on for you today. It's not a, a search for blame, but it's a search for understanding about who you are and yeah. what you're made of. Yes, yes. Fantastic, fantastic. I had one more question, if you don't mind. I don't mind. Last question. Last question. And what's your job in a marriage? <laughs> what My job in a marriage? Mm-hmm is to enjoy my wife. And that's her job is to enjoy me. And um, I ask couples all the time, how are you doing with that job? If, if you shift the perspective about, it's basically the same. It's another way of talking about the thing that I was talking about earlier. Will Smith said about he and his wife, Jada's marriage. He said, we decided that at a certain point that we were going to go get happy and then come to the marriage happy. And we were going to walk our, are our separate individual journeys together supporting each other. But if you come empty, if you come begging, if you come relying on the other person, if you come, then you end up blaming them for your unhappiness, right? Because that's the same thing. If, if it's their job to make you happy, if you're not happy, it's their fault. Same with parents and children. Parents tell me all the time how unhappy they are with their child's legitimate problems, drug use, suicidality, depression, anxiety. And I say, I understand you love your child. I understand... Your child's suffering causes you pain. I get that. But it's your job to sleep at night. It's your job to find your serenity and your peace and your happiness. Go do your work somewhere else so that when you come back to the child or in a marriage, when you come back to your partner, you're able to enjoy them. You're able to, to fall in love with their unique dilemmas. You know, my wife has to make room for my dilemmas and I have to make room for her dilemmas. And that means that 
I have to take care of myself, not just in the marriage, but I have to take care of myself in other places too. That's my responsibility. That's my job. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Jesus Christ can talk to you all day. (laughs) Thank you, James. It was an honor to be here. Thank you. I I really appreciate your time. And um, yeah, yeah. It's only lunchtime for you anyway, so which is good. <laughs> I'm heading out to lunch. You bet. Yeah. And you have a good yeah. weekend. You're, you're already done with the day, so enjoy yourself in your evening and have a great weekend. Yes, yes. Evening time for me. Um, yeah, great book. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right, James. Take care. If you have enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it. You could leave a quick review on my Facebook page don't be afraid to talk or DM me on Instagram the show notes will include all the relevant links from today's episode if you haven't already please download leave a rating and share with your friends you might just reach the person who needs to hear this message please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes I am James Lumumba signing off with gratitude